Amen. Thank you, Shane and Jordan. Appreciate that. And that fits in with our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 8 because we're going to see some bowing before the Lord. People who are in positions of worship. Well, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew and we have spent a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount. And now we are in chapter 8 and verses looking at chapters 8 and 9 because Matthew groups them together. And we are looking at Jesus coming down the mountain from the sermon. And the way Matthew groups this material in chapters 8 and 9 is interesting. It's not necessarily in chronological order, but he groups it so that he introduces us to three miracles and then teaching about discipleship. And then three more miracles are grouped together and then teaching about discipleship and so forth. So we're going to be looking at a lot of miracles over the next several weeks. And last week, we just kind of took a step back and thought, well, if we're going to be looking at individual miracles, what is the purpose for miracles to begin with? Why does Jesus even manifest his power? Why does he use his supernatural powers and why does he use them in the way that he does? So if you possess the kind of power that Jesus had Unlimited power. How would you use it and what would it look like? Would it be showy? Would it be with fanfare? Because that's not how Jesus does it and there's a reason. And the reasons that we looked at were, first of all, Jesus' miracles are performed to show that he is the fulfillment of the promise from the one and only true God from the very beginning that, yes, the world's broken, it's fallen, But I am going to send into the world the promise, deliver the king, and he will rule over it forever. So every miracle that Jesus does is uniquely designed to proclaim that to the world. I'm the promised king. But it's also to show us how he's going to use his rulership. So it's an allusion to the the kingdom ways. And also... He performs these miracles in his style or his unique way to show us exactly how he's going to turn the whole direction of the world from kind of uh, towards evil and, and redeem it and restore it and point it back towards good. And the way that he uses his tremendous powers to do this is through self-sacrifice, through pouring his power out into broken, weak vessels so that we can be whole and right before God. All of these miracles that we're going to look at, they're going to proclaim those very three things in their own way. This morning, we're going to look at the first three. And ordinarily, I would read the passage up front, but just to save a little time, we'll read it as we go. We're going to look at the first 15 verses. And I'm going to do something a little different because they're not necessarily in chronological order, although it would be neat if it did happen like this. But I'm actually going to preach them in reverse. I'm going to look at them, from my opinion, what would be the least sensational and then conclude with the most sensational miracle. So what do we find as the least sensational? Supernatural, nonetheless, But the least sensational. In verses 14 and 15, Matthew chapter 8, we see the unrecognized. 
And the reason I have these people labeled as the uns, you might say, is because from a Jewish perspective, before I read the passage, but from a Jewish perspective, these would not be the kind of people that you would be desirous to minister to. You have the unrecognized, which would be Peter's mother-in-law, which are women. And in that day and age, women didn't exactly hold a place of prominence. We'll talk about that. You also have the unworthy, which is a Gentile. In the Jewish mindset, you weren't real anxious to minister to the Gentiles. You'll find out why. And then lastly, the unclean. This is a man that Jesus comes to Jesus in a position of worship, as Shane and Jordan sang about in the offering. And he is diseased. He's full of disease. So you have the unclean, the unworthy, and the unrecognized outcasts or on the fringes. And yet Jesus performs three miracles. So let's look at verses 14 through 15. First, the unrecognized. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. So I think that this is the least sensational, as you will see, when we look at the others of the miracles. It's not a big spectacle. Uh, it wasn't even really out in public. Uh, the, the heavens didn't open. There wasn't a lot, of, a lot of screaming, a lot of drama. Jesus, please heal me. I'm in desperate need of you. It all took place very suddenly in the privacy of a home. And it's um, th there weren't any dramatic words spoken. And it's just someone that has a fever. It's not even a sickness as unto death that's described to us. No crying out. Matter of fact, as far as we know, mom, Peter's mom, didn't even ask Jesus to heal her. He just walks into the situation and sees it for what it is. You get the impression um, that what she's burdened about just as much as being sick is that, my goodness, you know how women think, and in particularly in that culture, it was driven in to you to be hospitable and to serve those within your home. And so she's thinking, my goodness, we have guests, Jesus of all people, and I can't even get up in my own house and serve him. And minister to him. So I think from this passage we get the impression that she wants to do that as much as she wants to be well. And I think that kind of opens us up just to have a little fun here for a minute. Opens us up to an interesting train of thought. If you were sick, what's the first thing that you would like to do if you were healed or you got better? When, you, when I have a stomach virus and I can't eat, once I start to feel a little better, and even before I start to feel a little better, I've got something on my mind. I want to eat. Or, you know, when you have a sore throat and it's that dry, very painful throat and you just can't even swallow. I mean, you have to. Kind of like blinking. You have to. But it hurts so much you don't want to. And all you can think about is, I just want to be able to swallow just one time without all this pain. 
and you just picture yourself guzzling delicious fluids and it smoothly going down your throat. So we often think of the very thing that the ailment or the hindrance is holding us back from. And I know that there are some among us that uh, maybe or are suffering with back pain, maybe even chronic knee pain, hip pain, other kinds of ailments. What would we do if we were healed? What we would what would we do if Jesus granted us the gift that we want? Now, I know that sometimes all we want is to be able to do the very thing that our if it's a physical ailment. That it's holding us back from. And so when Jesus heals lame people, a lot of times, what do, do, what do they do? Man, they put their feet and their legs back in to work. And they're walking, they're running, they're dancing. Or someone who hasn't been able to speak for a while is using their voice to speak. And it's, and it's back to normal. And I think that's what Peter's mother-in-law wants to do. I want to get up to be able to do the things that I can't do because I have this fever. When the ten lepers came to Jesus, what was in their heart? They wanted to be healed, but what was in their heart? Why? Well, we know what wasn't in their heart. Because Jesus did heal ten lepers, men that came to him. And what wasn't in their heart was gratitude. It wasn't that I want to do this so I can give you thanks. Except for one, one came back. And what was in his heart, self-generated, as he thought about, wow, I just got a, I just got a new life. And I can think of a thousand things I want to do with my new life and my new body. But the one most important thing I'm going to do that trumps them all is I'm going to, I'm going to go back and t- say, thank you, Lord. And I think it's a probing question for us to ask ourselves, whatever's holding us back, the job we think we need, money hindrances, physical ailments, spiritual things, Lack of relationship, the thing that we think we need in life that's holding us back. If God gave it to us, what would we do with it? Would we just continue to carry on in our self-serving life? Or are we longing for it? I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but I think it's at least alluded in this passage. Are we longing for it so we can use it to serve God so we can use it to worship God? Isn't that a probing question? Okay, if I gave this thing to you, if I answered that prayer, what would you do with it? She, when she was healed, immediately got up and verse 15 says, began to serve him. Look where her focus was. I got my health back and now I can worship him and serve him as my heart's desire is. That's what her heart's Desire is what are we lacking this morning and what would we do with it? One of the things that Jesus said is true discipleship on the Sermon on the Mount or in the Sermon on the Mount was um, 633. When it gets right down to it, what's your main focus? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The other things. According to his divine providence will come and they'll go and they'll come and they'll go. But our main goal, true discipleship, is we find ourselves seeking God, which means wanting to live our lives to his praise and his glory with every resource we have and even the things we don't have. True discipleship is food for thought. And I think we can learn from this mother in law here.
And having said that, I think what stands out about this passage or this miracle is the fact that it really doesn't stand out, does it? In comparison to the other miracles. It's a private incident. It's not dramatic. And when it gets right down to it, when you think about it and look at it for what it is, it's a person and she just has a fever. I mean, it's just a fever. And in our thinking, surely there are more important things to do under the realm of the kingdom of God and you're the king. Surely there are more important things that would have a bigger impact on the world than to spend your time healing this woman's fever. It's just a fever. And in that culture, the thinking might be, and it's just a woman. And as I said, in that culture, women didn't have a high place of standing. Their, their testimony didn't count in court. They were very dependent upon others for a livelihood, males. And a lot of times found themselves in want if their husband was deceased. They needed to be taken care of. And they were, in some senses, a second-class citizen. They weren't allowed into, according to God's law, into the inner court in that realm and way to worship. And so there was this mindset here. They were largely unrecognized, and yet Jesus, who does things different and thinks different, he thinks actually rightly, it's not insignificant to Jesus. Jesus broke the norms of his day. And he, he, women gather around him and he taught them and he entrusted to women powerful kingdom truths. And they play a huge part in his kingdom and the recognition of who he is and how he demonstrates his power. He's entrusted these things to them. He didn't back down from them. And so what significance is there in this little miracle, we might say. Well, first of all, does it attest to his deity that he's the son of God? Yeah, because he did something supernatural. The fever left her and immediately she got back up. It wasn't, uh, you better take it easy or take two of these and see me in the morning. It was, she's restored to wholeness. It also is an allusion to the kind of rulership that Jesus offers. And that is, little people matter to him. The unrecognized, those on the fringes, those in the corner, those who maybe society says, you're not really important, and anything that happens in your life isn't a big deal and doesn't make an impact. And this passage certainly proves that thinking to be wrong. In Jesus' kingdom, and of course, we haven't gotten there, but he just did some really dramatic things. He's got followings. But he comes into this sweet little atmosphere of a household, family happenings. Somebody just has a little fever. He cares about that. He heals that. He recognizes that. That's important to the king in this, the realm of his kingdom. He has compassion, this king. He loves people. He knows their place in life. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what she's experiencing. She knows he knows her frustrations. And I don't know how he healed. I'm, I'm guessing he went over to her. I'm thinking it was a very endearing moment. Maybe he just held her hand. Maybe he just put her his hand on her forehead to see how hot she was. I don't know. 
but it was a very compassionate act. And so God, the, the ruler, cares about even those aches and pains, even just those sicknesses where we say, I ain't got time for that. It's inconvenience. I know I'm not going to die. I know I'm going to get over. Everybody does. And yet God, <laughs> Jesus comes, cares about that, heals it, and brings her back to wholeness. He cares about little people. He cares about little things. He cares about aches and pains. And as an example of how he's going to rule. In essence, he's saying there's no room for that kind of suffering in my kingdom. And that's where I'm bringing you. And that's where I'm bringing the world. It doesn't happen all at one time yet. We're in the already not yet season. Where he's doing little manifestations and examples and patterns now. Where people literally are set free as they will be in eternity. But the days coming where that, all those aches and pains and feeling little and small and classifications are not welcome in this king's realm. And just, for, just from this little miracle that doesn't even stand out, perhaps that's what stands out the most. And then he amps it up a little bit in the miracle that precedes that with the unworthy in verses 5 through 13. Let me read that. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. With soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said to those who followed him. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east. And west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very Moment. Centurion. Is a Gentile. Again, not looked on with great favor in that culture. He was uh, means he, he was born outside of the covenant. He was not of the proper nationality to be a person of God. And not only that. But he is a servant of the enemies of God. His, his very job, his career puts him in opposition to the Jewish people because he is serving the Roman Empire as a commander. He is commanding men, giving men orders that as a result is in opposition to the desires and the wish, wishes of the Jewish people. They are under this kind of subjection. And so he is a soldier. He's 
a Gentile. He's an enemy. Most Jews would not even dream or consider of going into the home of a Gentile for these kinds of reasons and thinking it would make them unclean. So when Jesus says in verse 7, sure, I'll come. I'm sure that just that alone raised eyebrows. What? You're going into the house of a Gentile? I didn't know that was allowed. But notice this response from this unworthy guy who is not recognized, not looked upon in favor. There's a sense in which apparently he shares the same thoughts of unworthiness when he looks at himself and his condition, especially before Lord, because he says, I, Lord, I am not worthy. To have you come under my roof. But only say the word. And I think it gets interesting because there's a sense in which he's saying, I, I have no grounds to even present this request to you. I have nothing to offer you. I do see myself as unworthy. But I also see you as more than worthy. As a matter of fact, you are overqualified, you might say based on who you are and what you can do, overqualified to even do what I'm asking you to do. So you see the difference in, in attitude and the way he views himself in the presence of the Lord. He's saying, you have so much power based on my assessment of what I've witnessed or what I have heard at this time. You don't even need to travel to my house. All you have to do is speak. Now, how does Jesus respond to that? He makes a big fuss over it. It says he, he marveled. If you marvel, like, how would I know you were marveling? What expression do you get on your face? You know, what do you do? Do you get a twinkle in your eye? Do you get that little sheepish grin? You, do you swell up? Are you the kind of person that you can't hide your emotions and everybody knows what you're thinking? There are people like that. Whatever he did, the, the account was as soon as he heard that Gentile say that, he, was, he marveled. He came to life, if you will. And he, and he basically says, now that's what I call faith. That is what I call faith. Take note. He is totally impressed with this. So if it, when God is impressed with something as people who want to please him and impress him, it's good for us to think, OK, well, what exactly about this impressed him? Because I would like to think I could impress God as well. Well, obviously, the first thing is the incredible humility. It's not just great faith. It's a it's a humble faith. And this is very important in the kingdom of God. It's very important for us to see ourselves in the proper light. And Jesus has already taught us this in the Sermon on the Mount. And now we're actually getting to see examples in real life situations of how this can be played out. This Gentile is poor in spirit. He's not coming to God. You owe me. I'm a commander. You and I, we're bros. We're on equal plane. You command, I command. Let's work together in this. Or because of my great position, 
I, at least you at least owe me something. Look at all the stripes of ranking on my shoulders. That ought to get me somewhere. And what Jesus teaches us and what he does so well is he realizes, you know, when I'm standing before God, though those things serve me okay in the world, and I might be your boss or your superior, I might have a lot of power, a lot of money. When I stand before God, all that stuff comes off. It does me no good. Any kind of credentials, any kind of background that I had, no matter how powerful people might think I am, when I'm before the king, that's got to come off. Because he doesn't look at those things. I have to see myself as having nothing and, as Jesus would say, beggarly. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who see themselves in that kind of light. Why? Because they're the ones that can be filled with the true hope of the gospel. Because I don't have anything, therefore, what can I receive? The mercy and the grace of God. Instead of being self-sufficient and making demands and having entitlements. Now the, the, the centurion understands power. He understands authority. He lives it. He's a military man. And yeah, he really does say do this. And in the military, you know, the joke is, when I say jump, you say how high. And it's a joke, but really a powerful military has to have this kind of order. Has to, or you're not a powerful military. There are rankings. And whoever is over you, everybody else counts on you obeying that authoritative voice. And that's how we win battles. He gets this. And he has seen this in Jesus. As a matter of fact, this is the first instance that we know of in all the Gospels where somebody came to this conclusion, I'm guessing on his own because there's no precedent, he came to the conclusion on his own that Jesus could do this just by the command of his word. That is how powerful he is. That is how superior he is. Space doesn't hold him back. Time doesn't hold him back. Distance doesn't hold him back. All the other things that would hold us back. All Jesus has to do is speak. He doesn't have to come up with some kind of special potion. He doesn't have to bam you on the forehead so that you fall back. He doesn't have to speak. The, the person who is sick and terribly suffering doesn't even have to hear his voice. Nothing. He is so powerful. The centurion says... Just stay right where you are and usher whatever command and it shall be done. Now, wonder he stand, it's as if Jesus stands back and does this. Wow. Now, that's great humility and that's great faith. And then he. He does something um what in our day would be probably considered a modern day dig. He takes a dig. He's considering the crowd that's around him. And so after he claps and he marvels over this great humility of this great faith. He gives examples of not so great faith. And he says... I haven't even seen anything close to this kind of faith among my own people, among 
the Israelites. So you have just the opposite. Now, now you have you just saw a man who is so little in his own thinking of his worthiness. And God is absolutely huge. And now he's talking about a people who to God really is small, but they've they're huge. They have all this to offer. And he's talking, of course, about his people. And he says in 11, many will come for the east and west and recline at the table. with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom. You think he's talking about the sons of the kingdom. And then he says, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It reminds me of the passage we, he just taught one. Many will come to me. And say, Lord, Lord, look what I did. Look what I brought to the table. And he says, excuse me, my version. Excuse me. Do we know each other? I don't know you. Because remember, see, it's all about me. Look what I did. I'm still bringing myself into the kingdom. I never laid it to the side. And recognized you as the only superior one in the only way. I got my stuff. I got my stripes. So in this evaluation of Jesus, the faith there isn't just small faith. It's dead faith. Like small faith, at least small faith, if it's if it's alive and it's small, it can only grow. There's the potential. This is dead faith. It's, it's inert and organic, if you will. And. How sad it is that we know that they believed in God. We know they have the truths and they respected. The, there were so many things right about what they did. But it was never put together in a saving way. It was never condensed down to what they realized they needed for salvation. And it became the hindrance to the gateway of heaven. Believing in God doesn't get you to heaven. Even doing the right things doesn't get you to heaven. It is that humility and that emptying of self. And recognizing your complete dependency on the righteousness of Christ. And that's why you place your faith there. And Jesus didn't have to. He kind of gets rough in this passage, if you will. I mean, he says it, not me. But then he gives us this picture. Who wants this picture in your head? Especially if you're under conviction and you just heard these words and you're thinking to yourself, that might be me. I, I depend on my works or I have never humbled myself and I know I'm not saved. I know I'm not going to heaven. Then he has to paint this picture of the gnashing of teeth and weeping. Have you ever almost been bitten or maybe, hopefully not, but actually been bitten by some kind of ferocious attack dog? I mean, you know how it works. They come at you and, and their lips, God made them so that their jaws can just open wider than a supernatural miracle. How wide the mouth can open and how many teeth all of a sudden they have and how sharp and how big they are. And they're gnashing at you. You know how angry dogs are. They want your meat. And, and, and you, you, you're backed into a corner and you can almost feel them biting you before they even take a bite. And they're just gnashing, nipping. No wonder there's weeping. I'd be scared too. I'd be crying too. 
We're not talking about chihuahuas and Pomeranians and stuff here. We're talking about the mix, but the, the demonic mix of Pitbull and Rottweiler and Doberman Pinscher and Wolf. It's a wake up call. He, he puts this little dig in there and he praises. Here's the kingdom. And then and he shows the light. And then he says, but here's darkness. And it's a wake up call. He is reaching out to the lost in the midst of this miracle. Is that grace or what? I know it sounds harsh, but isn't it gracious for God to to make all these attempts at waking us up from our complacency and saying, look, there's also this group of people. They're not going to be welcome. Unless they get their life, unless they surrender the king. So it's a wake-up call, and the gospel still goes out even this morning. The, the message of Christ is going out. It's a wake-up call. Look, if you're not right, surrender to the king, because here's the fate. Beautiful act of grace. And I encourage anyone here that perhaps is not right with God this morning, and you know it in your spirit because God's speaking to you a way that only God can speak to you, and I've been there before. We'll talk. Let's talk. Talk to somebody that you know. Surrender to the king. He's a good king. And he's showing us the kind of rulership that he is willing to bring us under. And it's incredible and it's good and it's gracious. And he cares about everything, every hurt, every ache, every pain. And then lastly, we see what I would consider absolutely the most dramatic. I mean, this this is movie material here. Very sensational. Verses one through four. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the Priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And that was a legal obligation that you had when you were thought you were cured from your sickness. You ran it through the priest and so forth. So here's Jesus. He finished his sermon. They did praise, prayer and announcements. And then he's making his way back down into the towns to minister to the people. And as he's walking down the mountain... People are astonished, remember? Man, this guy speaks with authority. I can't even believe what he's saying. This is profound. I've never seen anything like it in my life. I'm excited. I'm nervous. And he's got this crowd. And then here comes this man. He's a leper. He's diseased. Coming into the crowd, ruin the party. And he comes and he does exactly what Shane and Jordan sang about this morning. He literally... He just he just crumbles. He just falls at the feet of Jesus. He's got nothing. And he gets in that position. I won't do it because I might not be able to get back up. But he gets in that position of absolute emptiness and, and humility and desperation. But it's also it's the form of worship. It's how you worship. You bow. You pay your respects. And he's diseased. Luke 
chapter 5 says he is full of leprosy. The disease is full-blown and there's different stages of it. Oh, he's bad. James Boyce says, based on research of uh, doctors and missionaries, by the way, who ran into this. He says, um, it's been proven that the disfigurement associated with what today is known as of a Hansen's disease comes solely because the warning system of pain is gone. That's what they learn. And the disease brings numbness to the extremities as well as to the to the ears, the eyes and the nose even. And the devastation that follows comes from such incidents as reaching one reaching one's hand into the charcoal fire because you drop something. And you reach in to get it out and you don't feel the pain there. Damage is done. Washing one's face with water so hot that it burns or gripping a hoe too tightly while working in the fields so that the trauma is done to the hands, causing them to ultimately become stumps. And Dr. Brand calls the disease a painless hell. And the poor man Jesus met he came down them as he came down the mountain had not been able to feel for years because it's it's full blown. His body was mutilated from head to foot and was foul and rotting. And we know lepers were not exactly welcome and invited to parties. They weren't welcome among public circulation. Even. There were even Old Testament laws about how they were to behave and where they could go and where they couldn't go. And basically, if they were to come into your presence, they had to wear torn clothes as a sign. They also had to cover their faces and proclaim to you and yell out so you could hear unclean, unclean. It's like a public announcement of your disease and of your shame and of your humiliation. Unclean, unclean coming through. They were supposed to stand as clear as they could from people. They had they had no social life. And in Israel, they were set outside the camp if they were diseased and could only come back in after showing themselves to the priests and being proclaimed healed. They usually became beggars, of course, because they couldn't make their own living. And they were basically treated like dead men, dead men walking. People had nothing to do with them. You just kind of waited for them to die. No hospice, no palliative care. And on top of that, you had the social and moral stigma of some of what we still get today. And that is, well, the reason you're suffering and the reason you're in sin is because um, the reason you're suffering is because of a personal sin. We all know that you committed it. So just go out and live your punishment that is due to you. So you had all of that physical and moral stigma on top of you. I love the words of the Greek scholar R.C. Trench. And he says, though the leper was not worse or guiltier than his fellow Jews, nevertheless, he was a parable of sin. An outward and visible sign of innermost spiritual corruption. And so this this disease in this leper is used as a metaphor, as an illustration to reveal what every human heart 
actually looks like removed or uncovered from the effects and the atoning blood of Christ. And what, what we really have here is our heart trying to cover itself up with the filthy rags of good works so that we think we have something to offer. But in the sight of God, really, that's all they are. Just a dead man walking that's trying to, to mummify himself so he doesn't look so bad. Jesus comes down and the leper comes up. Can only assume as he's supposed to do. And here's all the crowds that he says, unclean, unclean. And so I'm guessing there was a parting. As he makes his way, who wants to be close to this guy? Rotting and foul. And he just drops and he crumbles. Before his maker, before his master, he calls him Lord. And he's deformed and he's riddled with leprosy from head to toe. And what can we learn in this final miracle? Jesus heals him, by the way. But first of all, look at the awareness of his condition. Again, it's the Sermon on the Mount lived out. What did he bring with him? Nothing but rot and disease. He has nothing to offer. And so he does the right thing. Rather than pretending I have something to offer you. And I got a little piece of clear skin. He lays it all down. And he comes with nothing. And he sees himself as without you. I am nothing. I have nothing. I'm hopeless. Nobody wants anything to do with me. Even my own family possibly. Haven't felt a human touch in years, if not decades. Don't even know what it feels like anymore just to be touched. Haven't touched my kids, haven't touched my wife, haven't been touched by them, whatever. And it's this, it's this emptiness, this humility, this poverty of spirit that puts him in the perfect place to receive the good gift and grace of God. Another qualification, of course, is submission. Notice that what he says, there's no demands, just like the unworthy Gentile. There's no demands here. There's no we're on equal pain. And hey, before I got this disease, let me tell you about all the good I did. There's a submission, Lord, if you will. That's good theology. Man, that is good theology right there. It's really if you will. It's not whatever I worked up down here. It's, it's just if you will. What else is? It's nothing else. It's just if you will. You're the king. You're the ruler. You're the one in in authority, it communicates complete submission and, and admiration. My hope's in you. You're my only hope. And then, of course, another condition is faith. And that's a profession of faith because he's saying, Lord, he's calling him Lord. And he's saying, if you will, in other words, I know you can. And Mark, in his gospel, indicates that he actually repeated this several times, made this profession. And Mark also tells us in his 
account that Jesus was moved. Just like with the Gentile. This scene moved his heart. And in this case, it actually moved his heart to have compassion and pity. And he manifested the powers from heaven and healed this man who was not clean. And he says, be clean. So you have that poverty of spirit. You have the submission. And then you have faith. These are good qualifications. If we want to move the heart of God, if we want to marvel him, perhaps we should think about how we can we can live this out. How we can conform to these scenes that God gives us in his holy word of such humility in our own eyes, but bigness and vastness of the of who God really is. And then maybe we or maybe even as a church can see God's kingdom move because there are things that move the kingdom of God in certain directions. And as we wind down here, there's something that I want to point out because I think it just shows the kind of king that Jesus is. He didn't speak the word of healing. What does the text tell us that he actually does? He does what you're not supposed to do, really, when it gets right down to it, when you're Jewish. Oh, he did the unthinkable. He didn't just say, "Um, yeah, you're healed. You can get up and go home. He touches him. He purposely and intentionally touches this diseased man. And then heals him. That's part of the act. That's part of the power of God. He has. How how long had it been since this man had even felt touch? Therefore, Jesus making himself unceremonially clean according to the law. Is God not awesome or what? So compassionate. Puts his hand there. And again, it's it's how he's going to lead and and restore things. And and I'm you know what? I'm going to share my power. I'm going to manifest my power on you and make you what you can't be. And I'm going to take your disease on me. All the curse that is on you because you deserve it. Because of your defiled nature before God and all of the volition, the things you know you shouldn't do and you do them anyway. And all of the angry wrath of God that belongs on your shoulders. I am going to take that. Your hurt, your pain, your foulness, your disease, everything that's not right about this universe right now. And I'm going to absorb it. It's the kind of king we serve. That's the direction this church is on. That's the direction that Jesus, the trajectory that Jesus has the the course of this world on. Are you on it? Are you in it? Who is Jesus to you this morning? Again, a wake up call. For those that perhaps have not heard the gospel in this way. Surrender your life to the king. And a wake up call for those that know God. Or know about God or or have a pretty good theological base. Have you put it all together? 
to where it means something in your life, to where there's been new birth and a transformation and new creation has been born by the power of God. And then for those of us who we know were saved. Wow, this is what it looks like. True discipleship. True worship. So a few glimpses. May the power of God descend upon us and change our hearts and get rid of the hindrances in our lives so that the gifts and the grace can flow in. May God bless the preaching of his word.